Well, I hope you uh, picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes uh, as you came in today. We continue our study of Philippians, and uh, today, hopefully, uh, we will conclude uh, chapter 1. That is my, my plan. So let's begin with a, a very a brief review uh, in order to see the flow of the entire chapter. Now first, remember, and we talked about this in our introduction to the book of Philippians, we discovered that the very heart and soul of this precious book is the fourfold picture of Christ that corresponds with the four chapters. Uh, in chapter 1, uh, the focus is Christ, uh, our life. Uh, the key verse, uh, 21, where Paul says, For me, to me to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. The application being, uh, we are to live for Christ in all circumstances. In chapter 2, it's Christ, our mind, or our attitude. The key verse, verse 5, have this attitude or have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The application being, we are to love like Christ in all relationships. And then in chapter 3, it's Christ, our goal. The key verse, 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The application being, we are to look to Christ in all decisions. And then in chapter 4, Christ, our strength. The key verse, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The application being, we are to lean on Christ in all challenges. So chapter 1 is all about Christ being our life and living for Christ in any and all circumstances, which for Paul meant living and sharing the gospel. For the Apostle Paul, the gospel and Jesus were virtually synonymous terms because the gospel is the revelation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. For the purposes of our study, I divided chapter 1 into three major sections, which teach us what it means to live the gospel of Christ. And it puts it on very practical terms where the rubber meets the road. The first section is verses 1 through 11, where we learn that we live the gospel of Christ by fellowshipping in the gospel of Christ. Now, in your notes, you see just a brief summary statement of these verses. We read there in your notes, Christian fellowship is believers building relationships and working together to accomplish the mission given to us by Christ to propagate or to spread the gospel throughout the world. If what we call fellowship does not center around a passion for and a participation in the spread of the gospel, it falls short of what the New Testament defines as true Christian fellowship. The second uh, major section of chapter 1 is verses 12 through 26, where the focus is living the gospel by advancing 
the gospel of Christ, advancing the gospel of Christ. Now, in these verses, Paul gives the Philippians an update on his circumstances, which was what? Imprisonment in Rome as he awaited trial before the Roman emperor Nero for the defense of the gospel. But what we have in these verses is much, much more than a ministry update. We discover what I believe is the most inspirational example in all the Bible of what it means to live for Christ. The first thing that we learn is that Paul's circumstances resulted in the progress of the gospel in verses 12 through 14. What appeared initially to be a great setback for the advance of the gospel, Paul's imprisonment, was actually transformed by God to be the greatest advance of the gospel. Through Paul's imprisonment, the gospel infiltrated the Praetorian Guard, the most elite and respected soldiers in the entire Roman Empire. Through the Praetorian Guard, the gospel of Christ literally became the talk of everyone in Rome, and even members of Caesar's household came to know Jesus Christ. And the application for you and I is simply this. Do not focus on escaping your circumstances, but utilizing your circumstances to share the gospel. We talked about the fact that we focus so much of our energy on outcomes. We worry about what might or might not happen. And as we focus on what might or might not happen, we miss Jesus as a present reality, what He's doing, how He wants to utilize our present circumstances, this moment, today, as an opportunity to make Himself known. So it's very important, as we talked about last Sunday, for us to relinquish, to release our lives, to leave the outcome into the hands of a sovereign God, and for us to simply focus on how we can use where we are, what we're experiencing, as a backdrop to make Jesus known. Now let me just give you a brief test to make sure you learn the lesson. Uh, in the Scripture... Uh, let me mention three different imprisonments, and then I'll just give you a little multiple-choice question. In the book of Acts, Peter is in prison. Uh, the, uh, James has just been uh, beheaded, uh, and so they're on a roll, and they say, well, we're going to take Peter out now. So they put Peter in prison. He's literally in shackles, and you remember what happened. God miraculously sends an angel into that prison, and rescues Peter, delivers Peter from ex execution. Now we've been looking in the book of Philippians at Paul's prison experience. Paul was in prison for what? Four years on this particular occasion. And God used Paul's imprisonment, what? As an opportunity, as we've seen, to advance the gospel. Then when you go to the book of Revelation to Jesus' letter to the church at Smyrna, there he talks about a group of believers who were imprisoned, and he tells them, be faithful to death. In other words, they suffered martyrdom out of their relationship for Christ. So on one hand, here's Peter, miraculously delivered by an angel from prison. Here's the apostle Paul who endures the pain 
of four years in prison, but God transformed his imprisonment as an opportunity to advance the gospel. And then you have these believers in Smyrna who suffered martyrdom. Now here's my question. Which one brought greater glory to God? So how many of you, by a raise of a hand, how many of you would say, A, Paul, uh, Peter's miraculous deliverance from prison, did that bring God greater glory? Anybody? Who wants to pick B, Paul, God taking those four years of imprisonment and transforming them into advance of the gospel? I thought I saw one. Okay, Paul was, okay, Paul is up there. There's a few. There's a few. How many want to say the, the Smyrnan believers who uh, didn't, uh, who uh, loved Jesus so much they were willing to go to death for him? Raise your hand if you believe that. Man, did, none of you have an answer? May, and maybe you caught on. Really, the correct answer is, that's none of your business. <laughs> uh, that's the point. And hopefully, by your lack of response, most of you caught on. In other words, that's God's business. God determines the outcome. We are to focus on Him and how to utilize our present circumstances for His honor and His glory. So Paul's circumstances resulted in the progress of the gospel, and God wants to do the same thing in our lives. The second thing that we discovered in verses 15 and 18, and again, this is still review, is Paul's critics were motivated to proclaim the gospels. Uh, Sadly, we discovered that many of the preachers in the city of Rome were jealous of Paul's position of prominence in the church. And they saw Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity to put the apostle down and promote themselves, to gain that position of prominence, of preeminence, uh, that Paul had held for so many years uh, out of great respect for him and his walk with God. But instead of getting caught up in a spirit of competition, instead of getting caught up in a spirit of rivalry or trying to fight back, Paul simply rejoiced that these men preached Christ, that people were coming to Jesus, the church was growing. Now, what is the application to you and I? We are to put at the center of our aspirations, not promoting our reputations, but what promoting the gospel. And then the third truth, and this is where we ended last week, was Paul's confidence was his imprisonment was a God-given opportunity to exalt the prize of the gospel. The the prize of the gospel being what? Jesus is the prize of the gospel in verses 19 through 21. Despite being in prison and not knowing whether he would be released or executed, As we just mentioned, Paul did not worry about the outcome. He left that in the hands of a sovereign God. He had one singular focus, that whether he lived or died, he would do nothing to disgrace Christ, and that the prize of Christ would be exalted for all to see. So what is the application for you and me today? God uses a believer. He uses you as a telescope to bring Christ close to unbelievers who see him only at a distance, and he uses you as a microscope to magnify the greatness of Christ to unbelievers who see him as small. Remember, we talked about the fact how unbelievers see Jesus as only some sort of distant, shadowy 
figure way back in history that has no impact on their lives today. And therefore, Jesus appears very small in their eyes. So many other things are so much, much more important uh, than Jesus. Well, God will use your testimony to enable unbelievers to see Jesus up close and personal. And He will use your trials. He will use your adversity, your crisis, to magnify the greatness of Jesus as Christ's power, strength is perfected in your weakness. Believers are God's lens to bring Jesus into focus for those who do not know Him. Now, that is where we ended last week. And so we need to see a fourth way Paul advanced the gospel of Christ. And that was Paul's choice. Paul's choice was to live for the church to be perfected in the gospel. Paul made a choice to live for the church to be perfected in the gospel in verses 22 through 26. For the church to be matured. For the church to grow in the gospel of the Lord. Now, look with me first at Paul's preference for death. And this was definitely, now remember, he's in prison. He does not know whether he's going to be executed or whether he's going to be released. But he clearly states, as we're going to see in this passage, that his preference would be death. Paul just said in verse 21 that to die is what? Game. Because for the believer, death is merely a door that opens wide to what? Possess Jesus and to be able to eternally enjoy Him and all the riches and blessings of heaven. Now, follow in your Bibles. I hope you have your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 1. And, follow, and let's read verses 22 and 23. Paul says, but if I am to live on in the flesh, in other words, if I'm to be released from prison, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. I mean, to live or to die. He says, verse 23, but I am hard pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much what? Better. He says, for me right now, execution actually would be better than release because I would depart to be with Christ. That word depart is a very fascinating word in the Greek text. Uh, this word was used of soldiers uh, breaking camp, taking down their tents, and moving on. What a wonderful, simple, beautiful picture of a Christian's death. The tent we live in, this body, is taken down at death. And our spirit goes home to be with Christ in heaven. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 reads, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven. An eternal body made for us by God Himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. 
And later in that same passage is where Paul says to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. Paul readily admits to depart and be with Christ would be much better for him than to remain here on earth. But now look at Paul's motive for living. Look at his motive for living, verses 24, 25, and 26. He says, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. What is Paul saying? And let's not make this complicated. He is saying, yes, death would be far better for me But to remain living is necessary for the Philippians' progress and joy in the faith. Go back to verse 22. And notice Paul said, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Now folks, this brings clarity to what Paul meant in verse 21 when he said, for to me to live is Christ. For Paul... Living meant helping believers progress in their relationship with Christ in order to experience the fullness of joy in Christ. Therefore, whenever a choice arose in Paul's life about what to do, about where to go, even on the point of living or dying, the issue had nothing to do with what Paul preferred but what was best for the church, what was best for the body and bride of Christ. Look at the next statement in your notes, which dramatically captures Paul's attitude. Paul was willing to postpone heaven to grow the church, and he was willing to go to hell to win the loss to Christ. Paul was willing to postpone heaven to grow the church, and he was willing to go to hell to win the loss to Christ. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3 reads, this is Paul, he says, with, with Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 and 24. He says, you know, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And all things are lawful, but not all things build up others. He says, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Neighbor. In verse 33 of that same chapter, Paul wrote, I don't do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that many may be saved. And then in next week's message, as we enter Philippians 2, we'll see in verses 3 and 4 where Paul wrote, do nothing. Do absolutely nothing from selfishness 
or empty conceit. Don't do anything to, for your own advantage, for your own welfare, but with humility of mind, with a lowliness of mind. You're to regard others more important than yourself. You're not to look to your interest, but to the interest of others, and you're to have this attitude in you because what? It was in Christ Jesus. It was that attitude that motivated him to leave the glories of heaven and come to the ghettos of this sin-cursed world to die a humiliating death on the cross for you. Now, what is the application to our lives? We'll look at the next statement in your notes. A believer's criteria for living should not be what is best for me, but what is best for the church. And how can I win the loss to Christ? And folks, we don't live this way. But this is how the Bible challenges us to live. That regardless of what the decision is in our life, that this is always at the center of our thinking in making that decision. What is going, not what is going to be best for me, but what's going to be best for the church. What's going to be best in terms of putting me in a position to win the loss to Christ? And folks, this is, goes totally counter to the American church culture. I mean, we have a consumer mentality when it comes to church. True? I mean, we shop for churches. Like you go to the mall and shop for the best, bill, uh, best deal. We're all looking where we can find our preferences, what we want. It's all about me, my needs, me having a feel-good experience. That is totally foreign to the New Testament. The New Testament, you see a commitment. You see a covenant. You see a loyalty among believers in a local church that could not be broken. Where the issue is not what's best for me, but what's best for this church family. And in the New Testament days... When a church began to go through trouble, you didn't see them bailing out looking for another church. They said, what can I do? What can we do? How can we come together and fix this and become what God has called us to be and go forward as the body of Christ to walk as he walked in this community? So we are greatly challenged here by Paul's attitude and his mentality and his perspective on life. Again, totally foreign to, to much of our experience here, again, in the American church culture. So in chapter 1, the focus is to live, live, live the gospel of Christ. How? By fellowshipping in the gospel of Christ, verses 1 through 11. By advancing the gospel of Christ in verses 12 through 26. And then this very last section of chapter 1, we live the gospel of Christ by suffering for the gospel of Christ, by being willing to suffer for the gospel of Christ. And this is the focus of uh, the last verses in the chapter, verses 27 through 30. Now, in this final section of chapter 1, Paul turns his attention away from his own affairs to challenge the Philippian church about their affairs. But do, do not miss the connection between the two. His challenge to them is built on the example of his own life that he has just shared with them in verses 12 through 26. 
And also keep in mind, as we deal with these concluding verses in chapter 1, that for the first time, and we, we talked about this in our introduction to the book of Philippians, for the first time, he begins to directly address the two primary concerns he had for the church at Philippi. The one concern was disunity from within. There was a problem in this church. We'll see it very clearly in chapter 4 where there's an argument going on between two ladies and apparently folks in the church are, you know, they're, they're sort of taking sides and it's threatening to rip up the church. And Paul knows if this happens, they've immediately lost their credibility before the eyes of a watching world. They've immediately lost their opportunity to impact their world for Christ and to spread the gospel. So that's his one. And his other big concern is opposition from without. This was a church that was under a lot of fire. And that hostility was increasing within their community towards, uh, towards the Christians. And he was very concerned about how they would respond to that opposition, how they would respond to the persecution and suffering. He did not want them to retreat. He wanted them to continue to go forward because their calling was to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were soldiers in a war, and soldiers don't retreat. Soldiers go forward, and there's only one thing a soldier is after, and that's victory. No matter what the cost, no matter what price has to be paid. So he's going to begin to address those two things. And, and in, the, in these concluding verses, he's basically saying, hey, I've just told you about my life. I want you now to follow my example. Follow my example. You know, it's like Paul out there leading the forces. And he's, he's picked up the banner of Christ, and he's saying, okay, follow me. And he basically gives him five specific ways to do so. And look at these with me. And I know I don't have much time, but I, I, we can get through these. And I, I would like to get through all five. First, sanctify the gospel in your conduct. That's the first thing he tells him. Sanctify the gospel in your conduct. Verse 27, the very first phrase in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves, Philippians, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In the Greek text, circle that word uh, uh, conduct. Only conduct yourselves. In the Greek text, the word conduct literally means, literally means to behave as a good citizen. That's what the word literally means. To behave as a good citizen. So he says, Philippians, behave as good citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the Philippians understood something about citizenship. Again, I'm testing your memory. We go back to our introduction of Philippians. And remember we said one of the keys of understanding this city is that this Greek town was granted Roman citizenship by Octavian, who later became Caesar Augustus. This, folks, was the greatest prize that could be won back in Bible days. Roman citizenship had all sorts of perks and privileges, not least to mention, you didn't have to pay any taxes. You had a privileged position, and this was granted to this Greek city after the battle of Philippi. And you remember I told you as a result 
they adopted Roman law, they adopted Roman culture, they adopted Roman dress, they, even the architecture of the city was transformed, and Philippi became known as just Rome in miniature. It just looked like a, a, a tiny Rome because they just became copycats because they were citizens of Rome. And so Paul is using that and he says, but wait a minute. Now you're citizens of what? Heaven. In chapter 3, verse 20, Paul actually writes, our citizenship is in heaven. So now, Philippians... You are to adopt God's laws. You are to adopt God's ways, God's character. You're to be copycats of Him. So you're to conduct yourself, you're to live in such a way that you'll bring honor to your King. Look at the application. Very simple. Like a good citizen of heaven, do nothing to dishonor your King, but do everything to promote His kingdom. So you just ask yourself, when people watch me live, when people watch me relate to my wife or my children, when people watch me at work in terms of integrity, in terms of truthfulness, in terms of being considerate and kind towards others, or in my neighborhood, whatever the realm might be, do they look at and they say, there's something different about this guy. There's something different about this gal. I mean, they're, they're, there's, there's the mark of Christianity upon them. And it's obvious that they have a relationship with Christ, and that dictates how they live, how they relate to life, how they relate to others. That they really are, by God's grace, attempting to live for Christ in all circumstances, love like Christ in all relationships, look to Christ in all decisions, and lean on Christ in all challenges. Because if that is tr actually true of you, it will not be able to be missed by others. Look at the second challenge he gives him. Stand firm on the gospel. Not only sanctify the gospel in your conduct, but Philippians stand firm on the gospel without compromise and regardless the cost. Look at that next phrase in uh, verse 27. So that whether I come and see you or I remain absent, Either way, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, a reference to the Holy Spirit. Would you circle the phrase standing firm? The phrase standing firm. Another fascinating word, uh, phrase in the Greek text, actually one word, and it was used of a soldier holding his position regardless of danger or opposition. That's what that word literally means. It, it was used of a soldier holding his position on the battlefield regardless of danger, regardless of the opposition. So what is the application? Like a soldier who defends his position at any cost, even to the point of sacrificing his life, stand firm on the truths of the gospel against all falsehood, against all sin. In other words, a Christian should never be politically correct. A Christian should live different. 
We live by different standards. We have moral absolutes that God has given us in His Word that mark us, that distinguish us. And we are called to be uncompromising in our walk, in our obedience. And regardless of whatever ridicule, scorn, mocking, or persecution that it brings. I think of, um, uh, i give you a great prayer to pray along these lines. Uh, I've mentioned before, this is a, a prayer that I began to pray for my children uh, before they were even in the womb. And I've prayed for them regularly uh, throughout all these years. It says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. That would better be translated that you would be filled with the knowledge of what God has already willed. And where do we find the will of God? In the Word of God. So this prayer is saying, God, open their eyes to see what I've called them to be. To see your will in your Word in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, that they would not only see that will, but they would learn how to live it, how to appropriate it, how to apply it to their lives. And then he goes on and he says, to please Him in all respects. In other words, that as believers, we wouldn't just have convictions built on God's Word, but we would be determined to follow those convictions. We wouldn't just have a talk, but we would have a walk that matches that talk, is what he's saying. That's what he's praying for. And then he goes on. In order that what? We might bear fruit in every good work, increasing in our intimate knowledge of God. And then I love this. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, that might of the Holy Spirit that works in us for the attaining of all steadfastness. There you have, standing firm. We need to be steadfast in our day. Yes, hostility is increasing towards Christianity. As I've shared before from this pulpit, in our society today, the only thing they will not tolerate is absolutes. In other words, the only absolute that this society knows today is that there are no absolutes. And I'm telling you, for any believer that stands on the Word of God and begins to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ... You're going to be spurned, you're going to be scorned, you're going to be ridiculed, and that persecution is only going to increase. And we cannot shrink back in unbelief. We must stand firm on the gospel. Look at the third challenge. Strive together for the gospel to be spread. We are to strive together as a church family for the gospel to be spread. And again, the key phrase, circuit, is striving together, striving together. And notice, this is where Paul begins to touch on this matter of disunity in the Philippian church. And so this, there's this admonition, hey, you're to strive together for the spread of the gospel with one mind. That word, uh, striving together, another fascinating word. In the Greek text, listen now, this is great. The word striving is where we get our English word athlete. The Greek word is athleo. And from this Greek word, we get our English word athlete. And then he couples the word with the prefix son in the Greek, which simply means together. Together athletes. 
Matter of fact, let me just mention at least 16 different times in this little book of Philippians, Paul uses the prefix son to emphasize the importance of togetherness, harmony, and unity in the church. What Paul is emphasizing here in verse 27 is that the church is a team, and we must play together as a team if we're going to win the contest. There is no place for prima donnas in the church. There's no place for glory hogs. There's no place for those who want the attention, the applause of men. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about coming together under the Lordship of Christ to spread the gospel, to work together as a team. Therefore, each member is important. And each member must assume their God-given role or it weakens us all. It'd be like, you know, a football team trying to play with eight men instead of 11 men or a basketball team trying to play with three guys against five. We need one another. One of my favorite verses along this lines is Ephesians 4.16. It says, the whole body, that's you and I, is fitted together perfectly as each part, that's you, as each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts, that's those sitting around you, grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. That's why we emphasize over and over again, if you're a member of Edgewood Baptist Church, God doesn't want you simply to be a spectator but a participant in the life of this church. And I have often challenged you that every member in this church needs to have a ministry and a mission. When I say ministry, I'm thinking of how are you plugged into this church family? Where are you invested to help the others in this church family? I mean, it could be being an usher. It could be working in the nursery. It could be being a teacher. I mean, we, it's a hundred, hundreds of different ways that you can get plugged. But are you participating? Have you found your role, your place on the team? And you're serving and you're... Uh, ministering to others. And when I say mission, I'm thinking, how are you in contact with the lost world? How are, where are you deliberately and intentionally acting in such a way to reach a lost world for Christ? And I think every member should have a ministry. They should be able to clearly articulate how they're participating in the body, what their place is, how they're invested, but they also ought to be able to clearly articulate, this is how I am in intentionally and deliberately trying to reach a lost world for Christ. And the church ministries gives you many opportunities to do that. Now, look at the application. The application. Like an athlete, play for the good of the team. Like an athlete, play for the good of the team to advance the gospel. And then look at the fourth challenge. Stay true to the gospel against all opposition. Now he's addressing that second concern, the issue of persecution and suffering. Stay true to the gospel against all opposition. Verse 28, in no way alarmed by your opponent. That word alarmed was a word that was used of a, of a horse that would suddenly become frightened and would run off. He's saying, don't get intimidated by your opponents. Don't run off. Why? Because their opposition is a sign of destruction for them but of salvation for you, and that too from God. See, now he, he, he's addressing 
the fact that the Philippians are in a tough situation. Go, let me take you back to our introduction briefly. You remember what was right at the center of culture in Philippi? It was a hotbed for the, what was called the emperor cult, where they elevated Caesar to be Lord. To be, those were the titles they used, that he was Lord, that he was Savior. The other title, that he was high priest. They considered this man God in the flesh. And they demanded total, absolute allegiance to Caesar. And this is what put Christianity in its early days on a collision course with the Roman Empire. The believers were unwilling to say that Caesar is our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. And we are submitted to him. Yes, we're going to be good citizens of Rome. We're not going to do anything to be subversive. And we'll be loyal to Rome. But you need to understand, our first and foremost loyalty is to Jesus Christ. And if Caesar and this empire commands us to do something that is in opposition to what has been taught by our Lord and Savior, we will have to disobey. Because it's better to obey God than man. Amen? Amen. Look at the application. So like a fighter, like a fighter, do not run from your opponent in fear, but confront him with confidence that the ultimate victory is yours. Like a fighter, do not run from your opponent in fear, but confront him with confidence that the ultimate victory is yours. Now let me give you this fifth challenge. I'm not going to really have time to develop it, but as we go through the book, I'll have many, many more opportunities to address this subject right here. The fifth challenge, suffer. Suffer for the gospel out of love for Christ and as a sign of his favor. In other words, he's trying to lay this, this notion down that, hey, when persecution comes, when suffering comes, it's not because God dislikes you or you're not in his favor. It's just the opposite. Persecution in the life of a believer is a sign of God's favor. That God is trusting you to use that adversity to put him on display. And we're to be willing to suffer out of love for Jesus because he suffered for us. Look at verses 29 and 30. For you, to you it has been granted. I love this. For Christ's sake. Not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. Paul said, what a wonderful privilege, Philippians. It's been granted you the honor not just to believe on Jesus but to suffer for him experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Notice what he's doing. He's taking them back to his example, what he talked about in verses 12 through 26, where he didn't care about the outcome. It was all about Jesus, exalting Jesus. He says, Philippians, follow my example. Follow my example. Suffer, if need be, out of love for Jesus, receiving the suffering as God's token of favor towards you. And exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the application. The application. Like Christ. Like Christ. The path of glorification. Always, I should have added there, leads through suffering. Like Christ. The path of glorification. Always leads through suffering. His humility came before His exaltation. His suffering came before His glory in heaven. And it will be the same for you and I as believers. Glorification will always lead us through suffering. Through Jesus' death on the cross, 
He not only saved us, but showed us how to deal with our persecutors. Love them to death. So Jesus' death on the cross not only saved us, but showed us how to deal with our persecutors. Love them to death. It wasn't chapter 1 just a marvelous chapter. What a challenge for us as believers. Now, as we move into our invitation, I believe it's going to be glorify thy name. Right, Andy? Glorify thy name. You know what that, you know what that um, term glorify literally means, the, the concept? We often sing it, but do we really understand what, what it's meaning? To glorify something simply makes to reveal it, to manifest it. In other words, when I, when I sing, Lord, glorify thy name through me, I'm saying, God, will you take my life and will you use it to make Jesus known? Through my life, I pray that there will be a visible manifestation of Jesus. Through my life, I pray that his presence will be extended into this world, his character expressed, his power demonstrated, not only for the good of the church, but the reaching of the lost. And so that's the challenge we've had today. So as we sing this hymn, Glorify Thy Name, we've given definition to it. God, give me the grace to live my life worthy of the gospel. Lord, give me the grace to stand fast on the gospel, to stay true, to strive together with other believers, to even be willing to suffer for who you are and what you've done for me. So I pray that we'll use this very closing song not just to mouth words, but to sing them as the expression of our heart. If you're here and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, He loves you. He went to the cross and He died for you to cancel out your sin debt, to give you new life, to give you forgiveness. And I invite you to open up your heart, to invite Him in, to forgive you of your sins, to take control of your life, and then join with us to strive together for the spread of the gospel. Let Jesus become big in your eyes, the most important thing in your life. And may that be true of all of us. And that's where we'll find true joy. Not in serving what we believe is our best interest, but what is the best interest for the furtherance of God's kingdom. Please stand as the invitation is extended. <laughs>